الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So today we start a somewhat new topic. It's not entirely new because it's within the it's within the same subject, but a new text um, within the subject of Ulum al Quran. And it is a text regarding a very specific part of Ulum al Quran, the sciences of the Quran. And that is relating to the science of tafsir, but even more specifically relating to something we call usul at-tafsir, usul at-tafsir. Usul at-tafsir is a part of or one of the many sub-sciences of Ulum al-Qur'an. And it's made up of two words, Usul and Tafsir. So Usul, as we've mentioned I think before, but we'll just repeat it again, is the plural of Asul. Meaning, the fundamental basis, the, the, uh, the basic principles, the qawaid, the rules, which are the foundation of tafsir. So are we going to do in the next two weeks the tafsir of any of the ayat? Not really, except by example except for, you know, to use as an example, we're not going to do the tafsir of any ayat in the next two weeks. However, what we're going to study are the principles and the rules and the system which provides a framework and a foundation through which you can understand how to interpret the Qur'an. Because you can't just open the Qur'an and interpret it as you like. You can't just open the Qur'an and, you know, like just understand whatever meaning you understand and just take it the way that you want. There is a framework, there are rules, there are pieces of information which are needed. And fundamental principles which are required to be able to make or to be able to properly understand the tafsir of the Qur'an. And these principles that we're going to talk about are in general very, very, very simple. They are not as complicated, for example, as the principles which underlie fiqh, usul al-fiqh. The principles which form the foundation of fiqh are quite complicated. But the principles which, found, which, which, underlie the princi which underlie the science of tafsir, in the way we're going to study them, 
they can be complicated later on, but in the way we're going to study them, are actually quite accessible and relatively easy to understand because we're not going to study them in a very advanced level. You can study them at an advanced level, in which case it's, uh, you know, there have been doctorate theses written on them. However, we're going to study them at quite a basic level because our aim is not to author a book of tafsir. Our aim is to be able to understand a book of tafsir and to get the most out of it by understanding what set of rules and what framework was this tafsir based upon. And once we understand the rules and the foundation by which tafsir is made, tafsir becomes much easier to us. And if any of you have ever read the tafsir of Ibn Kathir, and I don't mean the summarized version, I mean the, like the, the, uh, the one that comes in many volumes, even the summarized version, you might have found yourself, like I did, to find that book of tafsir actually quite inaccessible, quite difficult. And in our third subject, we're going to, uh, we're going to delve into Ibn Kathir. But one of, the, uh, one of the problems that you have with Ibn Kathir is the book is actually quite hard in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and personally, I believe it was not the best decision to make to translate this book before other books of uh, tafsir. And it probably confused a lot of people because the book is not an easy book to understand. When you have completed this next two weeks, inshallah, it will be make accessing books like Ibn Kathir much, much easier. Because as you will note when you read Ibn Kathir, one of the hardest things about the tafsir, and you could say this about many books of tafsir, is that it contains many, many, many different opinions. So you start reading and you end up quite confused by the end of it because you have read perhaps five different opinions regarding the ayah and all of them seem to come from reliable sources from the Sahaba, from the Tabi'een. And so it becomes difficult to access the book. The summary version is better because the, the summary version naturally removes some of that. But still the summarized version contains, as almost all of the advanced books of tafsir contain, many, many different opinions and many different ways of looking at the ayah. So one of the main aims that we have is to understand why that happens and to understand whether or not that is actually a problem. Because as the author of this book that we're going to study today, Shaykh al-Islam Taymiyyah says, in the vast majority of instances of tafsir of the early generations, there is no contradiction whatsoever in the different opinions. There might be 10 opinions, but all of them are completely 
in line with one another and he will explain why and this will help you to be able to access and to be able to judge the different opinions you hear in tafsir and to judge whether or not those opinions are worthy of consideration or not and whether you have to choose one of them or whether all of them can be correct and so on so these are some of the things that we want to achieve uh, in this book study of this book which is known as it's called Al-Muqaddimah it's called the introduction to the foundations or the fundamentals of tafsir. In English, it is translated as, let me get you here, Introduction to the Principles of Tafsir. Introduction to the Principles of Tafsir. And as always, inshallah, we'll post the link for you guys, um, the PDF link for you guys to study. So this is an introduction to the principles of tafsir. The word introduction, what does that tell you? It tells you that this book is at a beginner's level. This book is not really hard to access. Although there is something that makes it harder, and a student you should be aware of that. And that is that it is a relatively classical book. In the sense that it's not written in modern times. It was not written like in the last you know, 100, 200, whatever, 300, 400, 500, no, before that. So it's not written in the very earliest days of Islam, but no doubt it was written uh, it's not what we would term to be a modern book. And that makes it a little more difficult to understand. Because generally when you read a modern day book that was written by an author in the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, 50 years, 80 years, they're generally very easy to understand because the author talks in a way that you are quite familiar with. And using terminology usually that you're quite familiar with and usually the author knows the level of knowledge that exists among the Muslims at the time the book was written and, and caters for that. So the book has some difficulty in it, which is not that the book is, the book is still a beginner's book, but it has some difficulty in it because the standard of a beginner's book at the time of Ibn Taymiyyah is not the same as the standard of a beginner's book today. And just a word about accessing uh, the books of Ibn Taymiyyah uh, I think one of the most uh, important things or two of the most important things perhaps about the books of Ibn Taymiyyah Number one, he is extremely, extremely cautious, and you could even say picky, about the words that he uses. 
So you have to read them pretty carefully and sometimes you have to read them twice or three times and really pay attention because Sheikh is very well known for being extremely, extremely cautious and careful and deliberate about choosing particular words. And the second thing you need to be aware The second thing that you need to be aware of is that the Sheikh was extremely, extremely, I don't know whether to use the word intelligent or intellectual or both, but uh, very, it, the books are very intellectual books. They contain a lot of uh, high level terminology, high level language, complex. Uh, terms, this one less so because it's a beginner's book, but still, when you see, you know, when you read, uh, and particularly the fact that Ibn Taymiyyah gathers, you know, he really did gather together almost every science of Islam in one person. So he was an expert in hadith and tafsir and fiqh and aqidah and you know in every single one of those things the sheikh would have been considered to be a leading expert of his time uh, and likewise his ability to to be able to address, for example, philosophers and people of philosophy in their language. You know, it could easily be argued that he understood philosophy better than the philosophers did. Genuinely, when you read the level that he speaks when he speaks about things like philosophy, he speaks about it with more understanding than the philosophers speak about it. And he shows a depth of knowledge about it that they themselves don't show so he is very intellectual and that also makes it a little bit you means you have to sometimes uh, go quite slowly through his books because he can easily uh, divert off onto a topic that in of itself a whole book could be written on so he's going to touch upon things here which are from Mustalah al-Hadith, the science of Hadith, and things that are maybe from Usul al-Fiqh, and things that are from Aqidah, he touches upon. And that's because the Shaykh had a vast amount of knowledge in many different sciences, unlike today generally, generally, not always, but generally today, you tend to see most people are known for one science. They may have knowledge of many, but they're known for one. And the Shaykh is faqih. He's a scholar of fiqh. And he, mashallah, he knows about hadith, he knows about aqidah, whatever. But he's primarily, you know, he's known for his, his fiqh. Sometimes you get a scholar that's known for two things. He's known for his fiqh and his aqidah. But rarely do you get someone like Ibn Taymiyyah, 
who in every one of those fields would be considered to be a leading pioneer expert of his time. And so when he diverts off on a topic about mustalah al-hadith or a topic about aqidah or whatever, there's a lot of knowledge comes out of that. There's a lot of depth. And the reason I'm telling you about that is uh, so that you go through the book slowly and carefully. And to assist you in this, I've chosen for us to use as our text the original text of the book, in addition to the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Taymin, rahimullah ta'ala. Sheikh Ibn Taymin is, of course, one of the relatively uh, the scholars of our, you know, our modern times, passed away, rahimullah ta'ala, but he was one of the scholars of, of our, our times, our, these, you know, the generations of the people that are here today. So the Sheikh will, the purpose of the, the explanation of Sheikh Ibn Taymin is to help us with these two issues. Number one, the issue of the fact that the book was not written in the last hundred years and so it may be a little bit inaccessible to us at times. And number two, to assist us with the depth of knowledge that Ibn Taymiyyah writes with and to help us to just be able to decipher that and be able to like take benefit from it without you know without getting ourselves too confused otherwise the book is uh, most definitely among uh, the easier books uh, that Ibn Taymiyyah authored and it's definitely intended to be a an introduction and a beginner's text and as we said, the aim from this is not for you to interpret the Qur'an yourself, but to give you the tools to properly understand the interpretation of the Qur'an that has been done by the, the various scholars of tafsir, the mufassirin. So that being said, we will begin, inshallah ta'ala, it's not a very long book, the, uh, the text along with the explanation runs to about... 180 uh, A5 pages, which is not a lot, because once you take the explanation of Sheikh Taymin out, you, you know you probably have 30 pages or something like that. It's, it's not not a massive amount of uh, it's not a massive amount of text. So the Sheikh begins with an introduction. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, the name of Allah. The most merciful, the bestower of mercy. And the Sheikh begins his uh, statement with Khutbat al Hajj. He says, Alhamdulillah, Nasta'inu wa Nasta'afiru wa Na'udu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyati a'manina. Mayatihillahu fala mudillala wa mayudlil fala hadiyala. Shadu an la ilaha illallah. Wahtahu la sharikala. Wa shadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he says, Amma ba'd. This is Khutbatul Hajjah. And it is the, uh, the, the text that is often said by a speaker or by an author before they begin to discuss their need. 
whether that need is a religious need or a worldly need or marriage or whatever. And for that reason, it is called Qutbatul Haja, the speech or the sermon of need. Because you use it, you use it as an introduction before you get onto the topic that you need to talk about. So before getting onto the topic that you need to talk about, you begin with Khutbatul Haja. And this is the from the, the Sunnah of the Prophet. I'm not going to explain Khutbatul Haja. It could be explained in another sitting. Uh, it really would take a full lesson to explain it in its full detail. Uh, however, you are welcome to read the uh, you're welcome to read the uh, the brief notes that Sheikh Muthimin uh, added to it, or to read other explanations because there are other English explanations of Khutbat al-Hajjah that you could find. Some are some are short and some are long. So the author he says, I have been asked by a number of brothers to author an introduction to the tafsir of the Qur'an comprising of the Sheikh said qawa'id kulliyya comprehensive principles which will assist a person to understand its meanings as well as differentiating between the truth and all kinds of falsehood and the criteria to be used in this. I'm quoting from the English. The Arabic is a little bit different. Sometimes the translator takes, uh, or the translator takes it upon themselves to add some explanatory uh, Explanatory words or phrases or something like that. But generally, we'll read from the English. So the first point we have to understand here is the reason behind the sheikh, the author, writing the book. And the reason behind the author writing the book is that he was asked by some of the brothers. He was asked by some brothers to write a basic text, an introduction, a muqaddimah, a basic text. And this muqaddimah should contain qawaid kulliyah, comprehensive principles. Qawaid kulliyah they can be applied to the whole of the Qur'an. They are principles that will help you in every aspect of the Qur'an. They help you to understand the Qur'an and its tafsir. They help you to understand the Qur'an and its tafsir. And understanding the Qur'an is one of the fundamental principles for which the Qur'an was revealed. We said the Qur'an was revealed to recite and the Qur'an was revealed to understand. And finally and most importantly, the Qur'an was revealed to act upon. And we mentioned this in the previous week's uh, classes. 
So understanding the Qur'an is a fundamental part of our worship of Allah as it relates to the Qur'an. And understanding the Qur'an is more difficult, as you would imagine, than reciting the Qur'an. And likewise, acting upon the Qur'an is also more difficult than understanding the Qur'an. So we can say the easiest act of worship that relates to the Qur'an is reciting. And the middle one is understanding. And the hardest one is acting upon it. I'm not sure that it has to be in that order every time. This is the order Sheikh Nusaymin gave. But I'm not sure it has to be in, the order, in that order every time. Because sometimes it may, there may be elements that are relatively easy to, to act upon. But you could also argue that those elements that are easy to act upon were also easy to understand. So... In general, in each point that is made by the Qur'an, the easiest thing you can do is to recite, then to understand, and then finally the, the hardest one is to, is to put it into practice. As for the statement of the Shaykh, which will help you, and the statement of the author, which will help you to understand its meanings, And it's tafsir. What is the difference between understanding the Quran and understanding its tafsir? Or is there a difference between? Because the Sheikh, the author, he said, "Tu'inu ala fahm al-Quran wa ma'rifati tafsiri." And we said he's very precise with what he says. So, is there a difference between understanding the Quran? and knowing its tafsir. Shaykh Ibn Taymin said, yes, there is a difference. He said the tafsir of the Qur'an is more than just understanding the basic meaning. A tafsir of the Qur'an is more than just understanding the basic meaning. Because tafsir includes, for example, discussing the rulings and the wisdom and so on and so forth, which is taken from the Qur'an, whereas understanding the meanings is just that you understand what the words say, you understand what the words say, and you understand, you know, like what is being conveyed to you, like as a, as a, in a basic sense. But tafsir is quite a bit more than just knowing what each word means. And I give you an excellent example which will illustrate that. You take a copy of Sahih International, okay, like the translation of the Quran. I'm not going to say Muhsin Khan because Muhsin Khan might confuse you with this point I'm going to make. You take a copy of Sahih International. Then take a copy of, let's say, a summary of Ibn Kathir. 
Do you find a difference between the two? The translation of the Quran is to do with fahmul ma'ani, understanding the meaning. You just understand the meaning and convey the meaning in English. The tafsir of the Quran covers a lot more than just telling you that this word means this and this word means this and this word means this. Or there is another way of looking at this, a totally different way. The Sheikh suggests is that understanding the Quran means understanding what is intended. And the tafsir of the Quran is just understanding what is and understanding what is apparent. That's a different way of looking at it. But the tafsir is understanding what is to be taken from the, you know, what you take from the words when you read, when you, you know, what, the, what the words, the basic kind of breakdown of the words and what is apparent from them. And the meanings are to do with what is intended, not to do with the words themselves. For example, it could be said that the meanings are, are related to rulings. This is halal, this is haram. The word halal or haram may not be mentioned in the ayah at all. So the tafsir might, it might be said, the tafsir deals with, for example, the words themselves that are used. The, the words themselves that are used. And understanding deals with the actual what you what you get out of it at the end the fruit that you get out of it that you're gonna you know what is actually what is this ayah actually telling you so when you explain the meaning of the ayah you may not refer to the words in the ayah themselves and when you do tafsir you will refer to the words in the ayah themselves that is another way of looking at it so in this way we would say that when you make tafsir of an ayah, for example, you might begin by giving the linguistic and shar'i definition of each word. And when you convey the meaning to somebody, you say, this ayah means it is forbidden for you to do this. This ayah means that you should try to do this. This ayah means that it is disliked to do this. This ayah means that we should love the Prophet ﷺ more than ourselves, even though the ayah doesn't say that. In a word-for-word -word sense, the ayah doesn't say it. So that's another way of looking at it. That's another way of looking at it. So ultimately, there could be differences, and there are differences between understanding and between tafsir. And two options are, one way of looking at it is to say that the tafsir includes more than just the meanings. Any tafsir is like more comprehensive. Or you could look at tafsir in a different way and say that tafsir is where you break down what the words, what the words actually are and what they mean and what they, what they say. And the meaning is where you give somebody the actual intention behind the ayah. And ultimately, neither. Both of those two can be true. 
it's more down to whether you look at tafsir as a, in a narrow sense or a wide sense. So if I take a book of tafsir, which is Ibn Kathir, for example, this book does not just contain the meaning of each word. It's not just a dictionary. But one of the meanings of tafsir as a, as a word could be just to give a dictionary definition of each word, for example. So it depends how you look at the word tafsir. If you look at the word tafsir in a very general sense, then tafsir is more comprehensive than meaning. And if you look at tafsir in a very narrow sense, then tafsir refers to giving you the, the meanings of all of those words and dealing with what's actually, what's actually in the mushaf itself. And understanding is more about giving you the fruits that we and the benefits that we take out of the ayah, even if those benefits are not mentioned in, in words. And both of those are, both of those are true. The author goes on to say, The books of tafsir contain both good and bad. Obvious falsehood and clear truth. So the Sheikh now is warning you about a problem that exists in many of the books of tafsir. And that is that most books of tafsir, beyond a very summarized book, and even some of the summarized books you can say this for as well, but especially the more lengthy books of tafsir, contain both good and bad. They contain reliable narrations and fabrications. They contain weak hadith and authentic hadith. They contain Israeliyat, and he narrates from narrations from the children of Israel, and they contain narrations from the Sahaba. So they are generally a mix of good and bad, obvious falsehood and clear truth. And obvious, sometimes some of the things you see in the books of Tafsir are obviously false, and some of them are obviously true. And then the Sheikh gives you a principle, one of the first principles. I think this is one of the, uh, this is the first real principle that he gives you. Knowledge is either a text which is received from an infallible source or a saying backed by clear proof. As for all else, then it is either false and rejected or doubtful. So he said knowledge is one of two things. Either something received from an ma'asum, yani from something yani infallible, or it is a statement that is backed up by a well-known evidence. So there are two 
types of beneficial knowledge in tafsir. When you go through a book of tafsir, there are two types of beneficial knowledge and two types of knowledge that don't benefit. Okay? Two types of knowledge that benefit and two types of knowledge that don't benefit. The two types of knowledge which benefit are number one, knowledge which comes from an infallible source. What does that mean? I.e., it comes from the Prophet directly. And that can include the tafsir of the Quran with the Quran and the tafsir of the Quran with the Sunnah. And either it came from the Prophet and it's part of the scripture of Islam, in which case this is beneficial knowledge. If Allah described what a word means in the Quran or the Prophet described the tafsir of an ayah in the Sunnah, this is the first type of beneficial knowledge. The second type of beneficial knowledge did not come from the Prophet ﷺ. It came from those who came with him and after him, i.e. the companions and those who followed them in good. However, this needs to come with something for it to be beneficial. It has a condition. It can't be considered to be beneficial unless it comes with a dalil. An evidence for it. That evidence might be who said it, it might be because you know something from one of the companions is definitely and it has its weight. But we need to understand that the only two things that are gonna benefit us in a book of tafsir is something that the Prophet said, or something that one of the Sahaba or the or the Tabi'een or the Imams of Islam said, and it has a and it has a, an evidence for it. Not something that they just said based on, you know, how they felt. And of course, this is very, very rare in the time of the companions, and perhaps it doesn't even exist in the time of the companions. But as you get later on, it becomes more common that people might speak about, you know, how they understand. So if you have something that's not a hadith or not an ayah, then it has to have a delil. As for everything else, then it is either false and rejected, or it is doubtful. So its truth and falsehood can't be ascertained. For example, what we are told from many of the Israeliyat, the, the stories of the children of Israel from, from their books. We cannot ascertain the, where we don't have any proof that it is true or any proof that it is false. So we say, Allah knows best. So when you're going through that book of tafsir, the first thing you want to do is to sort out what you're reading into one of four categories. Is it an Islamic evidence, i.e. is it a statement of the Prophet 
is it a statement of a scholar which is backed up with evidence? That evidence could be linguistic evidence, it could be, uh, you know, a hadith, or it could be analogy, or it could be, you know, it could be any type of evidence, but they have an evidence for what they said. Or is it something which is definitely rejected? I mean, you can, when you look at it, you know that it is wrong. Such as the tafsir of Innama anta munzir in Surah Al-Ra'd. Innama anta munzir wa likulli qawmin had. In some of the books of tafsir it says, Innama anta munzir, you are only a warner, you're only the one who is warning. And every nation has a guide. In some of the books of tafsir it says, you are, O Muhammad sallallahu are only the warner and Ali is the guide. This is clearly false. Not to say that Ali is not a source of uh, guidance, but that singling out this ayah to mean that there, that there are two people who were sent by Allah. One of them is the Prophet and the other one is Ali. The Prophet is called the Mundir and Ali is called the guide. This is batil, falsehood. Or it's something that you can't tell whether it's falsehood or not. For example, the name of the names of the brothers of Yusuf. We don't know whether their names any were what are said about them. The, 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 the other brothers, the brothers who plotted against Yusuf. But they, they're listed in the books of Tafsir. This one goes in the category of doubtful because we don't have an evidence for it from Islam. But we have the the, the stories of the children of Israel, the, the, the names that are mentioned in the Bible, what some of the people who uh, reverted or converted to Islam from Christianity and Judaism said. And you have like some statements, but we don't have anything that we can consider to be either a proof or an evidence, like a, a proof in of itself or an evidence. The author, he continues, the Muslim nation greatly needs to understand the Quran, which is the rope of Allah, the wise reminder and the straight path. The Sheikh is giving you a little bit of tafsir. The Quran is the rope of Allah. It is Hablullah. It is Hablullahil Mateen. It is the firm rope of Allah. And it is a dhikrul hakim. It is the wise reminder. And it is the sirat al mustaqim. We're going to come later on. Is that the only meaning of the sirat al mustaqim? We're going to come to this later on because this is part of what the text is going to answer for us. And is it the case that the sirat al mustaqim is the Quran? That's it. But the Shaykh is saying to you, the Qur'an is Hablullah, it is the rope of Allah. Like in the statement of Allah, وَاَعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا in Surah Al-Imran. And it is a dhikr al-hakim. 
like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talked about that this is what we recite to you from the ayat and a dhikr al-hakim and Shaykh is saying to you that dhikr al-hakim in the ayah refers to the Quran and it is as-sirat al-mustaqim so Shaykh is saying to you in Surah al-Fatiha as-sirat al-mustaqim is the Quran and as we will learn later on that is not an exclusive tafsir in other words it is not the case that the only thing the sirat al-mustaqim refers to is the Quran or the only thing that Habilullah he refers to is the Qur'an, the rope of Allah is the Qur'an. Or that the only thing, for example, وَأَذِّكُرُ الْحَكِيمُ اللَّهُ عَلَمْ Is there more than one tafsir about it? Uh, perhaps there is not more than one tafsir regarding أَذِّكُرُ hakim But regarding the other two, there are many, many, many uh, opinions about what the rope of Allah is and what the straight path is. And generally later on you will learn that all of them are correct. They are not contradictory. They are complementary to one another. The Shaykh continues to say, evil desires will never corrupt it. Wicked tongues will never distort it. Continuously studying it will never cause it to fade and its miracles will never cease. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised that he will preserve the Qur'an. Allah said, inna nahnu wa inna lahu We sent down the remembrance and we will preserve it. We will keep it safe. So no matter how evil the desire of the people who wish to extinguish the light of Allah is, they will never be able to corrupt the Qur'an. No matter how much their tongues try to distort the Quran. From them are a group of people who they distort it with their tongues so that you think that it is from the book and it's not from the book. I.e. the Torah. And they say this is from Allah, but it's not from Allah. I from Ahl Kitab. The Quran is not liable to this confusion. And it's not possible for the munafiqun or anyone else to come and to roll their tongue around the ayat until they make you think that something is from the Quran when it's not from the Quran. And like for this reason, when you see the failed attempts of people to copy the style of the Qur'an met various different people throughout history and Christians and other people tried to make a, a Qur'an like our Qur'an and copy the style instantly when you hear it instantly when you hear it you know that it's not from the Qur'an so it's not possible with regard to the Qur'an for anyone to distort it and likewise, it's not possible for anyone to distort its meanings either. Not just its words, but also its meanings. Because the Qur'an was revealed in a clear Arabic tongue. And the Qur'an 
is never translated. And by that, it's an important to, uh, distinction to understand. The meaning of the Quran is translated. But the Quran itself is only in Arabic. The Quran doesn't exist like the Bible. Which Bible? The Hebrew Bible, the Greek Bible, the, you know, the, the, uh, the English Bible. We don't, have a, we don't have an English Quran and a French Quran and a German Quran. We have translations of the meaning. An English translation of the meaning of the Quran. And a French translation of the meaning of the Quran. And there's nothing wrong with saying a translation of the Quran as a, as a summary. But the Quran itself, because it's understood that you mean a translation of the meaning. But the Quran itself only exists in Arabic. So it can't be distorted. How was the Bible distorted? Many times the Bible was distorted by translation. When they translated it into Greek, they added some things and they took some things out and they changed some things to make them suitable for what they, what they wanted to do. But the Quran is not liable to this kind of distortion. Continuously studying it will never cause it to fade. I.e. it doesn't matter how many times you study it, you keep on taking a benefit from it. And that, there is no other book like that. Every other book, you reach a limit to what you can take from it. And you, you know, reach a, 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 a part of boredom, especially if you were to read it many times, the same thing many times a day. If I were to ask you to read a line of poetry 30 times a day, 35 times a day, you'd get extremely bored of that line of poetry by, you know, within a week, within two weeks, you would get bored of it, no matter how wise it is. And yet you recite Surah Al-Fatiha in every raka'ah of every prayer. And you never ever get bored of it. You never ever think, that, oh, this is boring, I want to read something else. So studying it never causes it to fade. However many times you repeat it, it's like you've never read it before. The Quran is repetitive. It, it repeats the same concepts over and over again. And yet you never feel that it's repetitive. You never read it and think, that was mentioned on the page before, I know that already. Everything feels to be perfect. It's part of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. And uh, the miracles of the Qur'an, you can read about them in the previous text that we gave you. There's a chapter on the miraculous nature. Al-I'jazu fil Qur'an, the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. And I will leave you, instead of giving you too much, I will leave you to read that chapter in the previous text, in the previous book that we did. There is a chapter on the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. But what you have to understand is that the Qur'an is miraculous on many levels. Its language is miraculous. And its meanings are miraculous. And the knowledge it contains is miraculous. And you can read more about that in the, in the chapter that we referred to. Shaykh Al-Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, adds... As for the one who turns away from it, he may never see a single miracle in it. And that's incredibly true. And the one who turns away, he cannot, he doesn't see the miraculous nature of the Quran. When you 
tell them about the miraculous nature of the Quran, he just says it's just words, Arabic words. Because when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala seals a person's heart, they no longer see what is obvious in front of them. And the clearest example of that is atheism. The existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more obvious than the sun in the sky. And yet the atheist says, I don't see any evidence, convince me. It's like a person who comes and says, I don't see the sun, convince me. The sun is in the sky. How, can I, how do I go about convincing you the sun is in the sky? And if you can't see it, it you can't feel it. I mean, it's there in front of you, this blue sky. The sun is shining bright. The heat is on your face. And you tell me you can't see the sun. This is the example of the atheist. In fact, the atheist is, is even worse when he says that I can't see the evidence for the existence of Allah. Because the evidence for the existence of Allah is clearer to you than the sun. And likewise, the one who has turned away from the Qur'an can no longer appreciate the miracles that are found within it. They read it and say, okay, it's, it's talking about something might be right, might be wrong. They can't, they just don't, they don't see the miracle within the Qur'an anymore. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sealed their heart. Like the atheist who says, I don't see any proof that Allah exists. The Qur'an is so miraculous and it's miraculous in so many ways. You know, the miracle of not being, being, being uh, unable to, anyone being unable to reproduce it. Still until now, you know, like, and, and when you talk to the non-Muslims, they, they sort of give you like a, yeah, you know, we just haven't got around to it yet. But for 1400 years, they have utterly, utterly failed to even bring a single chapter. Smallest chapter is just three ayat. The likes of, Inna a'tainaka al-kawthar, fasalli li rabbika wanha, inna shani'aka huwa al-abtar. In 1400 years, they couldn't bring something any with those, that amount of words in it. It's tiny. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny few words. And the funny thing is that sometimes they copy the words. And they actually, and the only way that they've ever found to kind of like confuse people is that they actually take the words of the Quran, but they change them. So for example, they still keep inna a'tainak. And they say, inna a'tainak. And then they make a new word instead of al-kawthar. And then they, you know, they, instead of, uh, they, they keep fasalli, uh, or they take fasalli li rabbik, or they take that out and they say fasalli something. And then, and when you listen to it, 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 it doesn't have, you can see it doesn't have any of the meaning of the Quran, any of the power, any of the beauty, any of the linguistics, any of the grammatic eloquence, nothing at all. And so the Qur'an is obviously miraculous. And yet how many non-Muslims fail to see the miracle in the Qur'an and how many people who've turned away from the Qur'an fail to see the miracle within the Qur'an? The author continued, the scholars will never be able to reach its depths. Whoever utters it has spoken the truth. Whoever acts according to it will be rewarded. Whoever rules by it has been just. Whoever calls to it has been guided to the straight path and who arrogantly leaves it will be destroyed 
and whoever seeks guidance elsewhere will be misguided. It's fairly self-explanatory, those parts. The scholars can never reach its depth. And you never, ever, ever say, this is all I, that can be said about the tafsir of this ayat. And people continue and continue and continue and you, you don't reach the bottom. You keep going back and it may not be the word, but it may be the link between the ayah and the ayah before. Or a different aspect or the ayah as it relates to something else or an analogy or an evidence for something. You don't ever reach the depth. You never ever reach the bottom and say, that's it. I have nothing left to learn from the Quran. And that is why you never ever finish learning the Quran. Nobody ever. You never finish learning the Quran ever. You may finish a, a phase of learning the Quran. Like I have read the translation of Muhsin Khan, that's a phase. I have read Tafsir ibn Kathir, that's a phase. I have read Tafsir al Tabari, that's a phase. But you never ever finish, you can't possibly finish in studying and understanding the Quran. Whoever acts according to it will be rewarded, and whoever rules by it is being just. Either individually or generally, and whoever rules by it in individual cases, like when somebody comes for a, a judgment, or generally whoever <coughs> affirms what the Quran affirms and, and uh, approves of the rulings that the Quran gives and applies those rulings in their life has been just. Whoever calls people to it and to what it contains has been guided to the straight path. Somebody could turn around and say, okay, what about the people who reject the sunnah? Have they been guided to the straight path? We say they have not called to what the Quran calls to. Because the Quran calls to following the sunnah in tens and tens of ayat. As we mentioned before a few times. As an example, Whatever the messenger gives you, take it. Whatever he forbids you from, abstain from it. So if you're going to call to the Qur'an, you have to call to following the sunnah because that's what the Qur'an calls to. Ya amanu, wa rasoola wa ulul, wa amri minkum. O you who believe, obey Allah and obey His Messenger and those who are in authority over you. That's what the Qur'an calls to. So if you don't call to that, you're not calling to the Qur'an. And whoever arrogantly leaves it will be destroyed and whoever seeks guidance elsewhere will be misguided. Regarding destruction, it's not necessary, as the Shaykh Ibn Taymin said, it's not necessary, rahimahullah, that this destruction should occur in this world. It may occur in this world and the hereafter or it may occur in the hereafter alone. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the author continues, the author continues quoting an ayah, 
فإما يأتينكم مني هدى فمن اتبع هدايا فلا يضل ولا يشقى ومن أعرض عن ذكري فإن له معيشة ضنكا ونحشره يوم القيامة أعمى قال ربي لما حشرتني أعمى وقد كنت بصيرا قال كذلك أتتك آياتنا فنسيتها وكذلك اليوم تنسى سورة طاها 123-126 الله سبحانه وتعالى said the translation of which is and if there should come to you guidance from me then whoever follows my guidance will neither go astray nor suffer i.e. will neither go astray in this world nor suffer in the hereafter and whoever turns away from my remembrance he will have a depressed life and we will gather him on the day of resurrection blind the depressed life the scholars some of them said in the grave and some of them said in the worldly life and the grave and we will gather him on the day of resurrection blind he will say my lord why have you raised me blind when i used to be sighted Allah will say, in this way our signs came to you and you forgot them, so today you will be forgotten. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَمَن يُرِدِ اللَّهُ أَن يَهْدِيَهُ يَشْرَحْ صَدَرَهُ لِلْإِسْلَامِ وَمَن يُرِدَ أَن يُضِلَّهُ يَجْعَلْ صَدَرَهُ طَيِّقًا حَرَجًا كَأَنَّمَا يَصَعَّدُ فِي السَّمَاءِ Whoever Allah wants to guide, he opens up his chest and he opens up his heart to accept Islam. And whoever he wants to misguide, he makes his chest tight and constricted as though he were being propelled through the sky. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, the author is still quoting the ayat, مَنْ عَمِلَ صَالِحًا مِنْ ذَكَرٍ أَوْ أُنْثَى وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنٌ فَلَنُحْيِيَنَّهُ حَيَاةً طَيِّبًا Whoever does good, whether male or female, while he is a believer, we will cause him to live a good life. And this last ayah shows that whoever's condition is not mentioned, is not as mentioned, then their life will not be a good one. And again, another ayah, which is quoted. قَدْ جَاءَكُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ نُورٌ وَكِتَابٌ مُّبِينٌ يَهْدِي بِهِ اللَّهُ مَنِ اتَّبَعَ رِضْوَانَهُ السُّبُلَ السَّلَامِ وَيُخْرِجُهُمْ مِنَ الظُّلُمَاتِ إِلَى النُّورِ بِإِذْنِهِ وَيَهْدِيهِمْ إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ Surah Al-Ma'idah 15-16 There has come to you from Allah a light and a clear book. Allah guides by it those who follow His pleasure, the ways of peace, and He takes them out from the darkness into the light by His permission and He guides them to the straight path. And the author continues to mention another ayah. All of this is a proof for what he had previously said. Alif Lam Ra Kitabun Anzal Nahu Ilaika Li Tukhrijan Nas Minadhulumati Ilan Nur 
بإذن ربهم إلى صراط العزيز الحميد الله الذي له ما في السماوات وما في الأرض ألف لام را This is a book which we reveal to you so that you might bring mankind out of darkness into light by the permission of their Lord to the path of the Almighty the one deserving of all praise Allah the one to whom belongs everything which is in the heavens and the earth there is a benefit in this ayah that I think it's worthwhile Sheikh Muthaymin highlighted and I think it is worthwhile mentioning and that is that in the ayah Allah says that it is the Prophet who brings people from darkness into light but then emphasizes by the permission of their Lord the meaning of this is the Prophet is the sabab, he's the cause of it happening but Allah is the one who ultimately gives that cause or establishes that cause so it is Allah who does it but it's permissible to say the Prophet brought people from darkness into light as in that he was the cause that Allah put on the earth to bring people from darkness into light and it doesn't mean the Prophet on his own brought people from darkness into light that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said And the last ayah, the Shaykh quotes, the author quotes. وَكَذَلِكَ أَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْكَ رُوحًا مِّنْ أَمْرِنَا This is in Surah uh, 52-53. مَا كُنْتَ تَدْرِي مَا الْكِتَابُ وَلَا الْإِيمَانِ وَلَكِنْ جَعَلْنَاهُ نُورًا نَهْدِي بِهِ مَنْ نَشَاءُ مِنْ عِبَادِنَا إِنَّكَ لَتَهْدِي إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ صراط الله الذي له ما في السماوات وما في الأرض ألا إلى الله تصير الأمور Such we have revealed to you an inspiration from our command i.e. the Quran You did not know what was the book or faith but we made it a light by which we guide whom we will of our servants and indeed you guide to a straight path i.e. you instruct people and educate people and show people the straight path not that you ultimately guide them because ultimately the one who guides them is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the path of Allah who has what is in the heavens and the earth indeed to Allah do all matters return and so the author said I've written this introduction and made it brief full of beneficial points by the blessing of Allah and Allah alone guides to the path of righteousness. So this is the author's introduction. This is chapter one, the author's introduction. Now we move on to chapter two. Now we move on to, to chapter two or to part two. A chapter that the Prophet وسلم, explained the meanings of the Quran to his companions. So what you should come out with from the first chapter is a general introduction. We mentioned one important principle of the different types of knowledge you find in books of tafsir. 
uh, and generally you come out of the introduction understanding why the book was written and what the benefit is and what you should come out with from the book and something of the virtue of the Quran and the miraculous nature of it and the importance of studying it and learning it in this chapter you should essentially come out with the conclusion that the Prophet explained the meaning of the Quran to his companions and this is important this is important and in fact especially when it comes to later on and certain accusations that are made that the Quran is not properly explained or that the Quran is mysterious and we don't know what the meaning of the ayat are or we don't know what the meaning of the sifat are this is an important principle that our messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam explained the meaning of the Quran to his companions the author said it is obligatory to know that the Prophet explained to his companions the meanings of the Quran just as he taught its words just as he taught its words i.e. just as he recited its words he also conveyed its meanings the following statement of Allah includes both this is in Surah An-Nahl, Ayah 44. So that you may explain to the people what has been revealed to them. So Allah Azza wa Jal commanded the Prophet to explain to the people that he recited the Qur'an to what the Qur'an meant to make it clear to them Abu Abdul Rahman the author says Abu Abdul Rahman al-Sulami said it's been narrated to us by those who used to teach us to read the Qur'an the likes of Uthman ibn Affan and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and others that when learning from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam they would not proceed past 10 verses until they had learned what was contained in them of knowledge and action. They said, so we learned the Quran, knowledge and action all at once. This is why it would take them some time to memorize a single surah. We've mentioned this before, that the methodology of Uthman ibn Affan and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and others among the companions was not to proceed past 10 verses until they had learnt the Qur'an, i.e. they had learnt to recite them by memory, and they had learnt knowledge, what they meant, and they had learnt action. And those are the three levels that Sheikh ibn Taymin, rahimahullah, talked about in the earlier explanation in the introduction that we learnt the Qur'an, knowledge, action. We learnt how to recite the Qur'an, the words to recite, and we learnt what those words meant, and we put them into practice. Anas radiallahu an said, if a man from among us was able to memorize Al-Baqarah and Ali Imran, he would gain respect in our eyes. And we've mentioned this also before. 
He's like got a big position in our eyes. The one who memorized Al-Baqarah and Ali Imran. And there are several other narrations to, to, with similar wordings and similar conveying similar things. That they used to consider the memorization of Surah Al-Baqarah to be something really, you know, like very, very, the person was very knowledgeable because they learned to recite and they learned to recite and memorize and they learned to understand the meanings and they learned to put them into practice. Ibn Umar, the author continues, Ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma spent a number of years, it is said eight years memorizing Surah Al-Baqarah. This is reported by Malik. All of this is a result of saying the saying of Allah, Kitabun anzalnahu ilayka mubarakun liyadabbaru ayatih wa liyatadhakkara ulul albab. In Surah Sa'd 29. This is a blessed book which we have revealed to you that they might reflect over its verses and that they might, the people of understanding, could take a reminder. And the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, Afala yatadabbarun al Quran. Surah Muhammad, Ayah 24. Do they not reflect upon the Quran? And the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal in Surah Al-Mu'minun, Ayah 68. Therefore, it is not possible to contemplate over the Qur'an without first understanding its meanings. This is important. Because now the Shaykh is giving you an evidence, which is what is the chapter title? Proof that the Prophet ﷺ explained the meaning of the Qur'an to his companions. The first thing the Shaykh brought is the obvious command of Allah لِتُبَيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ You should explain to the people what has been revealed to them. Then he brought the statement of Anas and Ibn Umar that they spent extensive amount of amount, lengths of time asking, the, learning the meanings as well as learning the memorization of the Qur'an from the Prophet Now he's gone to a different angle. He said that the Qur'an demands from you that you contemplate. And you can't possibly contemplate unless you understand. How can you contemplate over something you don't understand? If I give you a statement in Chinese and say, I want you to think about that for the rest of the day. It doesn't help you. You don't get anything out of it because you don't understand what it means. Then you don't get anything. You know, there's nothing you, there's nothing you take from it. You can't contemplate something that you don't understand. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, إِنَّا أَنزَلْنَاهُ قُرْآنًا عَرَبِيًّا لَعَلَّكُمْ تَعْقِلُونَ In Surah Yusuf, ayah number two. We have sent it down as an Arabic Qur'an so that you may comprehend.
you may understand or comprehend. And again, you cannot comprehend or understand unless you have understood the meanings. The author continues, it is well known that the purpose of speech is not just to understand the words being spoken, but the intended meanings behind those words too. If this is the case with normal speech, then the Quran is more befitting of this. Likewise, it is the custom of people when they are studying in a certain field like medicine or mathematics that they seek to understand it. This is more so with the speech of Allah, which is their source of protection, success and happiness, as well as the backbone of their worldly and religious affairs. The Shaykh is still proving that the Prophet ﷺ explained the Quran to his companions. And he says, what about if someone, and this is now to, to uh, reply to a person who says, the Quran was in clear Arabic and the companions just, you know, like they just understood what the Arabic words were and nothing else. He's saying it's not enough you, when you're contemplating and understanding any speech. It is not enough to simply know what this word and this word and this word means. For example, if I were to give you the phrase, strike while the iron's hot. Strike, strike. Iron is a piece of metal that is heated in a fire. Hot is the opposite of cold. Okay. Did that help you to understand what the meaning is? Not really. And then I explained to you that strike while the iron, while the iron is hot. What it means is don't delay when you have an opportunity because the iron only benefits when it's hot. You have an opportunity to strike before you lose that opportunity, you should take it. Is it enough generally in speech to just explain this word means this and this word means this and this word means this? No. You need also to understand the meaning behind those words. And if this is the case with ordinary speech, then how about the Quran? Likewise, the Shaykh also gives the evidence of custom. When people are studying mathematics, do they memorize? Like just memorize, that's it, you know, like, so they do like, you know, like just plain, you know, 57 times 64 equals and they memorize the answer. Or do they understand how that answer came about? They understand. And we've seen in some countries where they tell the kids to memorize and you get, you know, you say to the kids, okay, what is like, I don't know, 50 times 50, and he gives you the answer. Okay, say 50 times 51. He says, I don't know. I haven't memorized it. And we would say that's blameworthy. So likewise, maths is just in the dunya. It's not really very important. Maybe apart from some limited examples, it's, it's in the dunya. What about your religion? Are you going to be satisfied to just memorize words and know that this word means this thing and that word means that thing or are you going to seek to actually understand what is being you're being instructed to do and implement it in your life the speech of allah is their source of protection success and happiness 
and the backbone of everything in the dunya and the akhirah, the dunya and the deen. Therefore, you even more need to understand the meanings and it would be even less appropriate if we would blame somebody for just memorizing the answers to some mathematical questions and not actually understanding how it works, then we have even more right to blame somebody who just memorizes the Qur'an as words and doesn't understand what is being conveyed to them. And then the Shaykh, he says, the author, he says, Rahimahullah, for this reason the companions rarely differed regarding the tafsir of the Qur'an. There was more difference among the tabi'een, but still considerably less than later generations. In short, the more noble a generation was, the more profound their knowledge, understanding, and unity. This is well worth stopping and breaking down into pieces. Number one, the companions rarely differed, very rarely, over the tafsir of the Qur'an. Later on we will hear that yes, they gave different examples. They said the rope of Allah is Islam, the rope of Allah is the Qur'an, the rope of Allah is the Qur'an and the Sunnah, the rope of Allah is the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the Jama'ah, or the rope of Allah is... And all of these are the same thing. They're just examples of something different or they're similar statements as we'll learn in a moment. But the, the companions very rarely differed in tafsir. And even if you compare in every science, even in fiqh, I mean they differed more in fiqh than in tafsir. But even in fiqh, if you compare the difference among the companions to the difference among the later generations, there's no comparison. In aqidah, you barely can count the things the companions differed about on one hand. And yet later on, books and volumes are written of the differences between the Muslims in what they believe. And yet the companions differed. Did the Prophet ﷺ see his Lord or see him in a dream? They differed. Is the saq mentioned in the Quran actually the shin of Allah or not? I mean, like two, I can probably not even reach five on my hand, of issues of aqidah in which the companions differed over. Likewise, tafsir. Very rarely did the companions differ over the tafsir of the Qur'an. Their students differed a bit more. But their students still differed much, much less than the differences that came after them. Because the more noble a generation was, and the most noble of generations is that of the companions, the more profound is their knowledge, understanding, and unity. Sheikh Murthaymeen, he said, Rahimahullah. The companions rarely differed over the tafsir of the Quran for two reasons. The first, the Qur'an was revealed in their language during their time. Their language, their time. 
Not only was it their language, which they understood, and let's be honest, their, the understanding of Arabic has, has become weak among the Arabs, let alone among, any, among the non-Arabs. The, the, the companions, their understanding of Arabic was pure. And they witnessed the Qur'an being revealed about them. And there's no doubt that an event that happens to you, you are more knowledgeable about it than an event that happens that is related to you. And likewise, an event which it happened in your time and you were able to directly meet the person it happened to and to ask about it and to talk about it. And there were many people who witnessed it. Definitely you understand that better than the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. That's the first reason. The second reason, their intentions were sincere and pure. So what changed in the time of the Tabi'in? Still the intentions were pure. Still Arabic was, <coughs> was there. However, two things or some certain things changed. Number one, the conquering of foreign lands meant that foreign words and foreign languages began to be spoken and mixed. And the number of trials and tribulations also increased. Knowledge gradually became more rare and desires gradually became more rampant. Maybe not in those early generations, but as it, time moves on, knowledge becomes more rare, the Arabic language becomes weaker, the number of desires becomes rampant, and so the differing increases. And this answers an important question for us or an important principle for us. And that principle is that differing is never a blessing or a mercy. Differing happens as a result of ignorance and as a result of any being far away from or further away from knowledge. And that's why the companions almost never differed. Differing must happen, it has to happen. But it is not something which is praiseworthy. And that's why you see that the further these generations went away from the, their knowledge, away, knowledge became diluted by the death of the scholars and so on, the more differing occurred. And that is why during the lifetime of the Prophet wasallam, there was no differing at all. Because the Prophet wasallam had all of the knowledge required to convey Islam perfectly. And so there was no differing because they simply went to the Prophet wasallam, or there was, no, there was no lasting differing. They might have differed and then gone to the Prophet wasallam. But the Prophet wasallam had the knowledge to be able to say to them, that this is the correct answer and this is the wrong answer. 
And so there was no differing. The differing just didn't exist. During the generation of the companions, then very, very few, very, very tiny, tiny, just a, a, a few points. In the tabi'een, very little, but just a little bit more. After them, more and more and more and more and more until those who wrote in the later times, the differing between them was huge in many, many different issues. The author continues, from among the tabi'oon who studied the whole of the Qur'an from the companions was Mujahid, that is Mujahid ibn Jabr al-Makki. He died in 104 after the Hijrah. He said, I read the whole of the Qur'an to Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, stopping him at the end of every verse and asking him concerning it. This is why a thawri that is Sufyan uh, bin Sa'id bin Masruq, a thawri who died 161, would say, if you read the tafsir of Mujahid, this is enough for you. And likewise, a Shafi'i and al-Bukhari and al-Imam Ahmad, all of them relied heavily upon the tafsir of Mujahid. Because Mujahid asked Ibn Abbas about every single ayah. He read the whole Quran to him and asked him about every single ayah. The author continues, the point here is that the Tabi'un studied the tafsir of the Quran from the companions just as they studied them from the Sunnah. So they studied from the companions and from the Sunnah. Does that not go back to what the Sheikh said in the beginning about the beneficial knowledge? It's either a direct proof from the Sunnah or it's a statement of someone backed up by evidence. So that is what Mujahid studied. They would also comment on the Quran using their deductions based on other evidences. So that tells you that the Tabi'un did not exclusively rely completely 100% in tafsir upon what the companions said. If they did not find a tafsir or they did not find a, a meaning, especially if there was a new issue arose, then they would base it upon other evidences, valid evidences in the Sharia. Because we said a beneficial knowledge includes a statement of a person based on valid evidence. Could be analogy, or it could be knowledge of the Arabic language, or, or it could be uh, something uh, along those lines. And, and a type of knowledge which is valid in Islam and acceptable, which they based some of their opinions on. The author continues, therefore, whenever something new arose and there was no clear text regarding it, the scholars of that time would have to deduce its ruling based on the Quran and the Sunnah. For neither of these two sources discusses every single event which will take place until the Day of Judgment. Does the Quran discuss every single event that will happen until the Day of Judgment? No. So you come across things for which you need a ruling from the Quran or from the Sunnah, and you don't have a tafsir of Ibn Abbas for that because Ibn Abbas did not witness it and the Prophet ﷺ did not tell us about every single event that will happen. He told us everything we need but he didn't tell us every single event that will happen. If, and therefore, uh, uh, Shaykh Muthaymin is saying, this is the quote of Shaykh Muthaymin, 
that if you were to discuss such an event, it would make the Quran a hundred times of its, of its current size if every single minor thing was in there. And so there was a need for the Tabi'un to um, add to the Tafsir or to bring a new angle to the Tafsir that was in addition and in these areas that is where more differing might have occurred any a modern issue an issue that was con uh, current at the time we now move on to chapter three so what have we understood from chapter two we've understood that the prophet ﷺ taught the meanings of the quran to the Sahaba and that the Sahaba taught the meanings of the Quran to the Tabi'in This chapter is called Differences of Opinion Among the Predecessors in Tafsir of the Qur'an A Difference of Variation A Difference of Variation So this one is talking about A Difference of Variation The predecessors differed little, not much In the Tafsir of the Qur'an However, they differed considerably more in issues relating to rulings any their difference in, in fiqh and ahkam was much more than their difference in tafsir. Because fiqh is usually based upon reasoning. You have to reason, you have to make analogies, you have to compare, you have to contrast. Whereas tafsir is based upon primarily understanding the language. So it is definitely, there is definitely, there are definitely less, there's definitely less by way of difference of opinion in tafsir. Whenever they do differ in tafsir of the Qur'an, it is more of a difference of variation rather than contradiction. So I want you to be, be aware of, we can class every single difference of tafsir into two broad categories. Every single difference of tafsir, modern, classical, anything, into two categories. Tafsiru Tanawur and tafsiru tabad The tafsir of variation i.e. a difference of variation or a difference of contradiction So for example the rope of Allah one person says the Quran and one person says Islam Are those two contradictory or are they simply a difference of variation? They're a difference of variation because in reality Islam is explained in the Quran and the Quran is representative of Islam and therefore to say that the rope of Allah is the Quran and to say the rope of Allah is Islam those two are not contradictory they are simply a difference of variation 
But for example, when one person says this ayah, for example, the ayah, وَطَعَامُ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ the food of the people given the book is halal for you. When some of them said, it is halal for you on the condition that they say, Bismillah. And some of them said, it is halal for you regardless of whether they say Bismillah or not. Is this a tafsir of Variation or contradiction? Any contradiction, because here you cannot hold both opinions to be true. You either need, they either need to say Bismillah or they don't need to say Bismillah. It's not like possible that you can, that you can hold them both to be true. That they can, yes they need and no they don't. And if, for example, if one person says halal or one person says haram, it's not possible to reconcile between those two. So the Shaykh is saying, that the tafsir, in the tafsir of the Qur'an, the overwhelming majority of opinions are variations of the same opinion, not contradictions. And so, when you start going through Ibn Kathir, the first categorization you're doing is beneficial versus not beneficial. That is that which has a dalil or that which has an evidence or that which is in itself an evidence. And then within those things, you are breaking it up into contradictory opinions versus opinions which are just variation. The ones that are just variation, you can accept all of them at the same time. The ones that are contradiction, you have to make tarjih. You have to prefer one opinion over the other because they can't be both accepted at the same time. Variation can be divided into two categories. Variation itself can be divided into two categories. The first Uh, I'm going to give you a short term. I'll give you what Sheikh Nathay, I'll read you what Sheikh, I'll tell you the term Sheikh Nathay Min used because it's easier to just write it down. Alternative wordings. Okay? It's not what Sheikh Islam said, but uh, Sheikh Islam explains in a paragraph it's a little difficult. So I'll just give you the short one, which Sheikh Nathay Min said, which is alternative wordings. Such that one focuses on a particular aspect and one focuses on a slightly different aspect. For example, someone talks about a sword and says about this sword it is made of fine steel. And the other person says it is sharp. One person says it's made of fine steel. And the other one says that it is sharp. They are both referring to the same thing. 
However, they're focusing on a slightly different aspect. One focusing on the purely the material, which is known to be sharp, and one focusing purely upon the sharpness without referring to the material. But ultimately, they are talking about the same concept, the same thing. But they're just giving a little bit of additional focus to one element over another element. I'll read you what Sheikh Islam said about it. He said, the expression of one and the same idea by using different words, such as them referring to the same concept by one mentioning a particular aspect and the other one mentioning another aspect. These explanations are like using equivalent names. These explanations are like using equivalent names, which lie between synonyms and antonyms. Sheikh Nuthaymin said, synonyms and antonyms. This is a slightly ambiguous statement, but I think he's referring to something else. Synonyms have a similar meaning and antonyms have different meanings. So these alternative words are similar as they refer to the same concept and idea, but separate in that they each use a different method in explaining the word. So they are neither synonyms nor are they antonyms. That is what I believe Sheikh Islam is saying, and Allah knows best. It's a little bit difficult, that sentence. Is that what he's saying is, they are not quite synonyms and not quite antonyms. And they're not quite this, exactly the same. But they are not also different. What they are doing is just slightly focusing on one aspect, slightly more than another aspect for example when you speak about the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as Shaykh Hussam Taymiyyah said for example it said while mentioning alternative names for a sword Sarim and Muhind one refers to the sharpness and one refers to the fineness of the steel similar to this are the names of Allah when you say Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Al-Malik Al-Quddus As-Salam They are synonyms in one aspect and not synonyms in another aspect, as we've studied. They are synonyms in the sense that they all refer to the same that, the same being. However, they are not synonyms in the sense that each one focuses on a different aspect. And the names of the Prophet ﷺ and the names of the Qur'an. So when you call the Qur'an, for example... Uh, or when you call, for example, Surah Al-Fatiha, Al-Ruqya, you, you, you are focusing on a particular aspect of Surah Al-Fatiha. And when you call it Sab'a Al-Mathani, the seven oft-repeated verses, you're focusing on a different aspect. It's a synonym in one way, in the sense that they both refer to Surah Al-Fatiha, but it's not completely a synonym because there is a difference in meaning between the two. So this is the first kind of variation. And it's very, that's what I mean, it's very deep when the Sheikh says it lies between synonyms and antonyms. It's a little bit difficult to understand what he means. But I believe this is what he means. 
that they are not true synonyms because the Quran is not exactly Islam. The Quran is the, is the revealed scripture as we defined it that you recite and so on and so forth, hell between the Mus'haf and all the rest. And Islam is submission to Allah in obedience and you know, lowering yourself to Him in devotion. That is Islam and that is the Quran. They both refer to the same thing. They are both referring to the same basic thing, but they are focusing on a different aspect. So Islam is focusing on a, a wider, like sort of the widest maybe lens, and the Quran is focusing on a particular part of Islam. But ultimately, these two are not contradictory. They don't get to the level where they contradict. They are just simply a variation of one person giving a little bit more focus than another. Uh, the Sheikh then goes on, and I'm going to skip this little bit because we've already mentioned it. Uh, the Sheikh goes on to speak at length about Aqeedah and the names of Allah. So, for example, he concludes this. Uh, uh, he talks about the names of Allah and the names of the Prophet and the names of the Quran at length. And you can read it. It's, it's not too difficult. But we've already mentioned it now in summary form. So that, so that we can continue on, we're going to skip that little part of the text. You can read it yourself, where he talks just exactly what we said, that the names of Allah focus on different aspects, and yet they are all names which refer to the same being. And more than that, he says a very, a very interesting point. The point being that every single name of Allah refers to him and the attribute that name possesses. By necessity, it also refers to the attributes which other names may possess, because we talked about necessity and about attributes being that, for example, if you say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, as samir for example, the all-hearing, then that necessitates from it that he is also al-alim, for example, the one who knows everything. Because if he can hear everything and see everything, then he, by sh for sure he knows everything. And so on. Or if he knows everything, then by necessity, he must see everything and hear everything. Because if he couldn't see and hear everything, then he would not be said to know everything. So these are another, and the Sheikh talks about this at, at length, a considerable number of, uh, number of pages. What I will do is jump to the example the Sheikh gives, because I think this is quite uh, relevant to our discussion. He said, if the intention of the questioner is to pinpoint an object, I need to refer to an object. So I want to refer to this object. I could refer to this, I could say my tablet or my iPad, or I could say my Apple device, or I could say the 
piece of equipment in the red folder, for example, or the red stand. I mean, these are, like, these are all referring to the same object, but using different aspects or different parts or different terminology to refer. The Sheikh said, if the intention of the question is to pinpoint an object, it can be described using any name so long as it is understood to refer to that object. So if I was talking about this and I said my computer, it's a problem. Because now I have a computer here and I have a tablet here. So if I say my computer, I'm not, I might confuse people. I might give somebody an object. I might pinpoint something which is the wrong object. People don't understand. So as long as I am clear that I'm referring to a particular object and there's no confusion, then I can refer to it with any name. The description may be a noun, maybe a noun, like maybe a proper noun, or it may be just a generic noun, so I could call it a tablet, or I could call it an iPad. iPad being a proper noun and a tablet being a generic noun. Or I could refer to it by its attribute. So I could call it the device in the red stand or the red folder. All of these are valid. So the Sheikh said, you can use any name as long as it's understood to refer to that object. The description may be a noun or an attribute. And then he gives an example of an ayah. Now this is where we have to pay attention because we want to make sure that we have understood what the Sheikh said. Because we think now, I think everybody thinks, most people in the room, we think we've understood what the Sheikh said. So how do we test we've understood? So the Sheikh is now going to give us an ayah. Now we need to make sure that we un now understand we can follow his example. If we can follow his example, tick, we've understood the point. The example is Surah Taha, ayah number 124. Whoever turns away from my dhikr. Whoever turns away from my dhikr. I'm using the Arabic word deliberately because dhikr is where we're going to have the debate. We're going to discuss the different opinions regarding dhikr and how each one is just like focusing on a different part or a different aspect. So, we say the dhikr is the Qur'an or the dhikr is the scripture which Allah revealed, any all of the scripture which Allah revealed. The word dhikr is a noun. And a noun is either attached to the subject or the object. And either it's attached to the one who remembers or the one who is being remembered. Here, since it says my remembrance and the one if we take it as an object then it means the remembrance of Allah like subhanallah and alhamdulillah and la ilaha illallah Allahu Akbar and if it means the subject then it refers to the one who is remembering Allah's speech and this is what is being referred to in this verse and then the Sheikh says, 
He gives the ayah before. And he says, if there comes to you guidance from me, then whoever follows my guidance will not go astray nor suffer. Meaning, guidance meaning, the revealed, the books that were revealed. The point being is that what is intended by the remembrance is his revealed speech or the remembrance of that speech by the servant. So whether you say my remembrance means my book or my speech or my guidance, the intended meaning is one and the same. The point being that whatever is intended by the remembrance is Allah's revealed speech or the remembrance of that speech by the servant. So there's two ways you could understand dhikr. One is that dhikr, one is as a subject, one is as an object. So in one, you understand it to be Allah's speech. Whoever turns away from Allah's speech. Or whoever turns away from his remembrance of Allah's speech. Do that one more time. Whoever turns away from Allah's speech. Or whoever turns away from his remembrance of Allah's speech. And in one, he's turning away from Allah's speech directly. And in one, he's turning away from remembering Allah's speech. These are two possibles. And therefore, and both of these are perfectly, and mean the same thing. And therefore, whether you say my book or my speech or my guidance, all of them, the intended meaning is one and the same. I'm just going to skip over a paragraph and read you because the, the, this par the, the paragraph in the middle goes off on a tangent again. This one says, If in this previous example, one asked about the meaning of dhikr and was told it means saying subhanallah and alhamdulillah and Allahu Akbar, this is a correct explanation. And if one said the word dhikr refers to that which Allah revealed from his books, this is also a correct explanation. For the word remembrance signifies both meanings it signifies the remembrance that Allah revealed and the slaves remembrance of Allah this is what a difference of expression is the first interpretation does not contradict the second as that which Allah revealed necessitates his remembrance so there is no difference if you say his book his guidance his Quran his speech his scripture or you say Subhanallah, or Alhamdulillah, Allah ilaha illallah, or Allahu Akbar. One is simply focusing on one aspect, and one is simply focusing on another. However, in the paragraph before, going back to the paragraph before, 
The Sheikh says, similarly, the verse can be referring to the remembrance Allah revealed, which is the Quran. The latter of the two meanings is stronger considering the context. I.e. you can still prefer one of those focus, you can still prefer the focus on one aspect over another. Meaning that both of them are valid and are not contradictory. However, the, the, the understanding of it as uh, the Qur'an is stronger because of what? The context. Because the previous ayah says, and if there should come to you guidance from me, whoever follows my guidance will not go astray and they will not suffer. And whoever turns away from my dhikr. Therefore, it's perfectly valid to say, whoever turns away from saying subhanallah and alhamdulillah and la ilaha illallah and allahu akbar, that's valid. However, in the context, it seems more sensible to put the focus upon the Qur'an because this makes more sense in the context and it, it, it seems like the, the focus is best placed upon the Qur'an because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said whoever follows my guidance and whoever doesn't follow my guidance whoever turns away from my dhikr therefore it makes sense to put the focus on on the Qur'an And the Shaykh said the reason is why it is called guidance in the former verse and remembrance in the latter is because this guidance which he revealed contains a reminder and a warning for mankind. And that's the, just the benefit of why it's called Huda and Dhikr. Because guidance, the guidance contains a Dhikr for mankind. It contains, like Allah said, فَذَكِّرْ فَإِنَّ الذِّكْرَ تَنْفَعُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Remind, the reminder benefits the believers. Just to finish off this, uh, this first category out of the two, the Sheikh said, if that which is preceded is clear, one realizes that it is often the case that the Salaf would describe something using a name which points to the object being referred to. At the same time, this name may also contain an attribute not present in its other names. For example, Allah is Al-Ghafoor and Ar-Rahim. Al-Ghafoor contains something that Ar-Rahim doesn't, and Ar-Rahim contains something that Al-Ghafoor doesn't, but they both point to the same being, the same essence. So it's not the case that we should, uh, and, and you should take from this, that it's not the case that we should delete those different uh, variations because each one gives us a different benefit it's like somebody if you deleted them it's like somebody saying we should not refer to allah by anything except saying allah we should no longer say ar-rahman ar-rahim al-malik al-quddus as-salam we should only just use the word allah we say no because these names give us a benefit even though they are all referring to allah and likewise these different tafasir when someone says the rope of Allah is the Qur'an and someone says it's the jama'ah and someone says that it's, the, it's Islam, each one gives us a different aspect. And there is no harm 
in preferring one of them over the other, i.e. to say that, you know, that this is the most appropriate sort of focus to give, or this is the focus that should be foremost in your mind when you read the ayah because of the context or because of some other, because of some other reason. Continues by saying, It is well known that this is not a difference of contradiction as some people mistakenly think. For example, here's another example. What does the straight path refer to? Some scholars mentioned it is to follow the Quran. Because the Prophet ﷺ said the Quran is the firm rope of Allah, the wise reminder and the straight path. Others have stated the straight path refers to Islam because of the hadith of An-Nawas ibn Sam'an that Allah gave the example of a straight path and then the Prophet ﷺ explained what it was. So both of the explanations for the straight path are in reality the same, as the religion of Islam is to follow the Qur'an. However, each description points to a particular aspect not present in the other description. The word path also signifies a third meaning. Similar to this are all of the other explanations given for the straight path, that it is the sunnah and the jama'ah. And some of the scholars of tafsir said the straight path is the sunnah and the jama'ah. Or it is the path of worship. Or it is obedience to Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. All of these explanations refer to one and the same thing. Islam, Quran, Sunnah and Jama'ah, Allah and His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the path of worship, they all refer to the exact same thing, as in the target is the same. However, they all focus on a particular attribute. They choose to describe it using a particular attribute. Just so that, and I'm not going to explain the second example, but just so that you know what the second, the second category is, the second category is, just so that you have it like, because I don't want to start, and then next time I will start and say to you the second category, and you'll forget what the first one is. So the second category is to mention by way of example i.e. to give some examples and he mentions a very nice example of this example for example if someone were to say what is bread what is bread and you were to go and take your Lebanese flatbread for example and say this is bread is okay does that mean that the loaf that is sliced is not bread or that the French like uh, baguette style of like bread is not bread no it doesn't mean that but the person gave you an example and from that example you can understand the remainder of what the the question is so somebody comes to you and says what is bread so the sheikh he said to mention by way of example and illustrate some aspects of the general term in order to draw the attention of the listener to the type of thing which is referred to and not to completely define the boundaries. So for example, if someone said, might say, what is bir? What is albir? And you say, albir is being good to your parents. And another person says, 
Albir is to be good to your neighbor. Which one is right and which one is wrong? They are giving, they are both giving examples. They are not saying that Albir is only being good to your parents or only being good to your neighbor. They are just saying, here's an example of Albir. Instead of me giving you a definition, Albir is every good thing. And if it's mentioned with taqwa, it only is good. And if it's mentioned without taqwa, it covers doing the good and, and avoiding the bad. Instead of going to that long explanation of what is Albir, just saying, okay, Albir has been good to your parents. Someone else says, Albir has been good to your neighbor. Says, Albir is giving charity. All of them are examples of Albir. They are not intended to be hard definitions. And that's exactly like the example of the bread. When someone said, what is bread? And you brought him the flat, the, the small flat pieces of bread. You did not intend by that that all of the other types of bread in the, sh in the shop are not bread. You just intended to show him bread so that he knows what bread is in the future. And so he, he can see, okay, I get it. I know what bread is. But you did not intend that to him that this small circular piece of bread that you're showing him that is flat means that all of the other things are not bread. Likewise, if someone asked you, for example, about bir in the Quran, and someone said bir is this, and bir is this, or ihsan, someone said ihsan is being good to your parents, someone said Ihsan is doing voluntary deeds, someone said Ihsan is... These are all examples which are not intended to be restricted. They're not intended to say the only thing that Ihsan is, is being good to your parents. The only thing that Ihsan is, is doing a voluntary deed. The only thing that... It's not the only thing. It's just giving you... Let me give you an example of it. And this is very, very, very common among the early generations in tafsir because definitions are hard to give definitions are hard what did we say about definitions they have to be jami'un mani'. they have to cover everything and exclude everything that's hard like if you ask me for definition of albir okay so albir with taqwa albir is every kind of good whether obligatory or recommended and when associated with taqwa in the same sentence uh, is limited to that and when not limited when not it includes doing avoiding every haram and everything which is disliked and it's an attempt at me to just off the top of my head to give you an, a definition that is jami mani i probably failed but that's my attempt but if i say to you albir is being good to your parents that's very easy it's very easy for me to say and i'm right i'm not wrong whereas the definition was very hard to come up with a definition that is both comprehensive and exclusive. That is what we mean by jami'un mani. Comprehensive and yet exclusive. And it excludes everything that should not be in it and it gathers everything that should be in it. That's very hard. And that's why every time we've mentioned so far a ta'rif, a definition, we've mentioned generally that the scholars differ over the definition. And this guy says this should not be here. And this guy says this should not be here. And this guy says this definition does not apply in this context. And this one says no. This definition should include this because definitions are hard to produce. And so it's quite rare that you see the scholars of tafsir give you a really rock solid definition for, for what something is, especially a generic term in the Quran, because it's hard. So instead, what they will often do is just give you examples. And someone says, I saw full of contradictions. This guy says that Albir is being good to your parents and this one says good to your neighbor. Look, 
there's ikhtilaf among the scholars. There's no ikhtilaf, they're just giving examples of a huge concept that you could fill a book with, and they're just giving you some examples of what that means. So that being understood, we'll come to the example ayat that the Sheikh, uh, the author, he gives rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, and it's quite uh, extensive. We will cover some of the ayat that the author gives. And uh, more or less, we're actually doing all right with the book so far. We're actually doing okay. Uh, I'm hoping, maybe we might not get right to the very end, but I'm hoping to get almost to the end with this book, because it really is, it really is doable within the, the length of time that we have. So uh, I'm hoping to get like, you know, a good way through it, at least, at least two-thirds of the way through. So this is, these are important points, and we, we sort of, what I wanted to do today is, to, is I deliberately went through it quite slowly. Next week, I will probably go through it a little more quickly and skip some parts, because I wanted you, it's your first time for some of you that you're going through a book like this. I wanted you to get used to the style of the sheikh, the fact that he goes off on a tangent and comes back again. Like he could go take a paragraph and go off and talk about aqidah or talk about usul or hadith or something and then come back to the same topic. He gives examples. The fact that there, there are some difficulties, like the examples he gives, sometimes you're left going, scratching your head and asking yourself, I need to understand this example again. And the need of modern scholars to help you to understand the speech of the early scholars. I wanted you to get this benefit today. Because really... There is an argument, and it's a, really, it's a really nasty sort of argument that goes around among some of the students regarding the early scholars and the later scholars. Some of the students will say to you, do not take from the later scholars. You do not, you know, like, like he'll say, you know, he'll come along and he'll say something like, I don't read the books of Sheikh so-and-so and so-and-so. I only read the books of Ali Imam Ahmad and, you know, those of that generation or Imam Ahmad and those for the next two, three hundred years, that's all I read. We say to them, it's good that you're reading those books, but also they are difficult to understand without referring to the, the later scholars. The later scholars, the intention is not to bring a new religion or to bring a new <coughs> interpretation, but simply to explain to you in a language and a style that you are familiar with what you might not understand from a language and style of people who came a significant number of, of, of centuries before uh, you did. So hopefully those points will have been benefited from and maybe t next time we will just somewhat speed up a little bit uh, and try to, finish the, try to finish the text. So we might miss out some of the examples next time but, and you can feel free to read them yourself but I highly recommend that you read this book very, very slowly and with a pen in your hand. And anything you don't understand, highlight it, bring it to class, and what we will do, inshallah, is we'll go through the explanation of Sheikh Al-Taymin, for example, and try to explain the words, because it isn't, it's not so easy. Like there are times when you read something and you're just like, I, no, I missed that, I don't get it. So it will take time. Read it with a pen in your hand, and read it slowly, sentence by sentence, and kind of tick off each sentence that, yeah, I understood what that is, I understood what that is, I understood what that is. Some people find it more difficult than others. Some people find it easy. It's like some people read Shakespeare and find it very easy, you know, and some people find 
every sentence to be like a battle to get to the end of it, you know? So people are different in the way that they understand authors that are not from their, their time. So it's some, a benefit in that uh, for you, inshallah. It's already past our time for questions again. Um, I'm just going to look at what the sisters posted on their side because I'm conscious I haven't answered many and I'll just very do it very quickly. 